the health of a man's soul may be known by his treatment of the Bible. Now, you are manifestly laboring under a sore disease. Will you not repent? I know I cannot reach your heart. I cannot make you see and feel these things. I can only enter my solemn protest against your present treatment of the Bible and lay that protest before your conscience. I do so with all my soul. Oh, beware lest you repent too late. Beware lest you put off reading the Bible till you sin for the doctor in your last illness and then find the Bible a sealed book and dark as the cloud between the hosts of Israel and Egypt to your anxious soul. Beware lest you go on saying all your life, Men do very well without all this Bible reading and find it linked to your cause that men do very ill and end in hell. Beware lest the day come when you will feel, had I but honored the Bible as much as I have honored the newspaper, I should not have been left without comfort in my last hours. Bible-neglecting reader, I give you a plain warning. The plague cross is at present on your door. The Lord have mercy upon your soul. Two, this paper may fall into the hands of someone who is willing to begin reading the Bible, but wants advice on the subject. Are you that man? Listen to me, and I will give you a few short hints. Hey, for one thing, Begin reading your Bible this very day. The way to do a thing is to do it, and the way to read the Bible is actually to read it. It is not meaning or wishing or resolving or intending or thinking about it which will advance you one step. You must positively read. There is no royal road in this matter any more than in the matter of prayer. If you cannot read yourself, you must persuade somebody else to read to you. But one way or another, through eyes or ears, the words of Scripture must actually pass before your mind. B. For another thing, read the Bible with an earnest desire to understand it. Think not for a moment that the great object is to turn over a certain quantity of printed paper and that it matters nothing whether you understand it or not. Some ignorant people seem to fancy that all is done if they clear off so many chapters every day, though they may not have a notion what they are all about and only know that they have pushed on their mark so many leaves. This is turning Bible reading into a mere form. It is almost as bad as the popish habit of buying indulgences by saying an almost fabulous number of Ave Marias and Paternosters. It reminds one of the poor Hottentot who ate up a Dutch hymn book because he saw it comforted his neighbor's hearts. Settle it down in your mind as a general principle that a Bible not understood is a Bible that does no good. Say to yourself often as you read, What is all this about? 
dig for the meaning like a man digging for Australian gold. Work hard and do not give up the work in a hurry. See, but another thing, read the Bible with childlike faith and humility. Open your heart as you open your book and say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Resolve to believe implicitly whatever you find there, however much it may run counter to your own prejudices. Resolve to receive heartily every statement of truth, whether you like it or not. Beware of that miserable habit of mind into which some readers of the Bible fall. They receive some doctrines because they like them. They reject others because they are condemning to themselves or to some lover or relation or friend. At this rate, the Bible is useless. Are we to be judges of what ought to be in the Word? Do we know better than God? Settle it down in your mind that you will receive all and believe all and that what you cannot understand you will take on trust. Remember, when you pray, you are speaking to God and God hears you. But remember, when you read, God is speaking to you and you are not to answer again, but to listen. D. For another thing, read the Bible in a spirit of obedience and self-application. Sit down to the study of it with a daily determination that you will live by its rules, rest on its statements, and act on its commands. Consider, as you travel through every chapter, How does this affect my position and course of conduct? What does this teach me? It is poor work to read the Bible from mere curiosity and for speculative purposes in order to fill your head and store your mind with opinions while you do not allow the book to influence your heart and life. That Bible is read best, which is practiced most. E. For another thing, read the Bible daily. Make it a part of every day's business to read and meditate on some portion of God's Word. Private means of grace are just as needful every day for our souls as food and clothing are for our bodies. Yesterday's bread will not feed the laborer today and today's bread will not feed the laborer tomorrow. Do as the Israelites did in the wilderness. Gather your manna fresh every morning. Choose your own seasons and hours. Do not scramble over and hurry your reading. Give your Bible the best and not the worst part of your time. But whatever plan you pursue, let it be a rule of your life to visit the throne of grace and the Bible every day. F. For another thing, read all the Bible and read it in an orderly way. I fear there are many parts of the Word which some people never read at all. This is, to say the least, a very presumptuous habit. All Scripture is profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16 To this habit, 
may be traced that want of broad, well-proportioned views of truth which is so common in this day. Some people's Bible reading is a system of perpetual dipping and picking. They do not seem to have an idea of regularly going through the whole book. This also is a great mistake. No doubt in times of sickness and affliction, it is allowable to search out seasonable portions. But with this exception, I believe it is by far the best plan to begin the Old and New Testaments at the same time, to read each straight through to the end and then begin again. This is a matter in which everyone must be persuaded in his own mind. I can only say it has been my own plan for nearly forty years, and I have never seen cause to alter it. G. For another thing, read the Bible fairly and honestly. Determine to take everything in its plain, obvious meaning and regard all forced interpretation with great suspicion. As a general rule, whatever a verse of the Bible seems to mean, it does mean. Cecil's rule is a very valuable one. The right way of interpreting Scripture is to take it as we find it without any attempt to force it into any particular system. Unquote. Well said Hooker. I hold it for a most infallible rule in the exposition of Scripture that when a literal construction will stand, the furthest from the literal is commonly the worst. H. In the last place, read the Bible with Christ continually in view. The grand primary object of all Scripture is to testify of Jesus. Old Testament ceremonies are shadows of Christ. Old Testament judges and deliverers are types of Christ. Old Testament history shows the world's need of Christ. Old Testament prophecies are full of Christ's sufferings and of Christ's glory yet to come. The first advent and the second, the Lord's humiliation and the Lord's kingdom, the cross and the crown shine forth everywhere in the Bible. Keep fast hold on this clue if you would read the Bible aright. I might easily add to these hints, if space permitted, few and short as they are, you will find them worth attention. Act upon them, and I firmly believe you will never be allowed to miss the way to heaven. Act upon them, and you will find light continually increasing in your mind. No book of evidence can be compared with that internal evidence which he obtains who daily uses the word in the right way. Such a man does not need the books of learned men like Paley and Wilson and McIlvain. He has the witness in himself. The book satisfies and feeds the soul. A poor Christian woman once said to an infidel, I am no scholar. I cannot argue like you, but I know that honey is honey because it leaves that sweet taste in my mouth.
and I know the Bible to be God's book because of the taste it leaves in my heart. Unquote. Three, this paper may fall into the hands of someone who loves and believes the Bible and yet reads it but little. I fear there are many such in this day. It is a day of bustle and hurry. It is a day of talking and committee meetings and public work. These things are all very well in their way, but I fear that they sometimes clip and cut short the private reading of the Bible. Does your conscience tell you that you are one of the persons I speak of? Listen to me, and I will say a few things which deserve your serious attention. You are the man that is likely to get little comfort from the Bible in time of need. Trial is a sifting season. Affliction is a searching wind which strips the leaves off the trees and brings to light the birds' nests. Now, I fear that your stores of Bible consolations may one day run very low. I fear lest you should find yourself at last on very short allowance and come into harbor weak, worn and thin. You are the man that is likely never to be established in the truth. I shall not be surprised to hear that you are troubled with doubts and questionings about assurance, grace, faith, perseverance, and the like. The devil is an old and cunning enemy. Like the Benjamites, he can throw stones at a hairbreadth and not miss. Judges 20, verse 16. He can quote scripture readily enough when he pleases. Now, you are not sufficiently ready with your weapons to be able to fight a good fight with him. Your armor does not fit you well. Your sword sits loosely in your hand. You are the man that is likely to make mistakes in life. I shall not wonder if I am told that you have erred about your own marriage, erred about your children's education, erred about the conduct of your household, erred about the company you keep. The world you steer through is full of rocks and shoals and sandbanks. You are not sufficiently familiar either with the lights or charts. You are the man that is likely to be carried away by some specious false teacher for a season. It will not surprise me if I hear that some one of those clever, eloquent men who can make the worse appear the better cause is leading you into many follies. You are wanting in ballast. No wonder if you are tossed to and fro like a cork on the waves. All these are uncomfortable things. I want every reader of this paper to escape them all. Take the advice I offer you this day. Do not merely read your Bible a little, but read it a great deal. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3.16 Do not be a mere babe in spiritual knowledge. Seek to become well instructed in the kingdom of heaven and to be continually 
adding, new things to old. A religion of feeling is an uncertain thing. It is like the tide, sometimes high and sometimes low. It is like the moon, sometimes bright and sometimes dim. A religion of deep Bible knowledge is a firm and lasting possession. It enables a man not merely to say, I feel hope in Christ, but I know whom I have believed. Second Timothy 1 verse 12 For this paper may fall into the hands of someone who reads the Bible much and yet fancies he is no better for his reading. This is a crafty temptation of the devil. At one stage he says, Do not read the Bible at all. At another he says, Your reading does you no good. Give it up. Are you that man? I feel for you from the bottom of my soul. Let me try to do you good. Do not think you are getting no good from the Bible merely because you do not see that good day by day. The greatest effects are by no means those which make the most noise and are most easily observed. The greatest effects are often silent, quiet, and hard to detect at the time they are being produced. Think of the influence of the moon upon the earth and of the air upon the human lungs. Remember how silently the dew falls and how imperceptibly the grass grows. There may be far more doing than you think in your soul by your Bible reading. The word may be gradually producing deep impressions on your heart, of which you are not at present aware. Often, when the memory is retaining no facts, the character of a man is receiving some everlasting impression. Is sin becoming every year more hateful to you? Is Christ becoming every year more precious? Is holiness becoming every year more lovely and desirable in your eyes. If these things are so, take courage. The Bible is doing you good, though you may not be able to trace it out day by day. The Bible may be restraining you from some sin or delusion into which you would otherwise run. It may be daily keeping you back and hedging you up and preventing many a false step. Ah, you might soon find this out to your cost if you were to cease reading the Word. The very familiarity of blessings sometimes makes us insensible to their value. Resist the devil. Settle it down in your mind as an established rule that whether you feel it at the moment or not, you are inhaling spiritual health by reading the Bible and insensibly becoming more strong. 5. This paper may fall into the hands of some who really love the Bible, live upon the Bible, and read it much. Are you one of these? Give me your attention, and I will mention a few things which we shall do well to lay to heart for time to come. Let us resolve to read the Bible more and more every year we live. 
Let us try to get it rooted in our memories and engrafted into our hearts. Let us be thoroughly well provisioned with it against the voyage of death. Who knows, but we may have a very stormy passage. Sight and hearing may fail us, and we may be in deep waters. Oh, to have the word hid in our hearts in such an hour as that. Psalm 119, verse 11. Let us resolve to be more watchful over our Bible reading every year that we live. Let us be jealously careful about the time we give to it and the manner that time is spent. Let us beware of omitting our daily reading without sufficient cause. Let us not be gaping and yawning and dozing over our book while we read. Let us read like a London merchant studying the city article in the Times, or like a wife reading a husband's letter from a distant land. Let us be very careful that we never exalt any minister or sermon or book or tract or friend above the word. Cursed be that book or tract or human counsel which creeps in between us and the Bible and hides the Bible from our eyes. Once more I say, let us be very watchful. The moment we open the Bible, the devil sits down by our side. Oh, to read with a hungry spirit and a simple desire for edification. Let us resolve to honor the Bible more in our families. Let us read it morning and evening to our children and households, and not be ashamed to let men see that we do so. Let us not be discouraged by seeing no good arise from it. The Bible reading in a family has kept many a one from the jail, the workhouse, and the gazette, if it has not kept them from hell. Let us resolve to meditate more on the Bible. It is good to take with us two or three texts when we go out into the world and to turn them over and over in our minds whenever we have a little leisure. It keeps out many vain thoughts. It clenches the nail of daily reading. It preserves our souls from stagnating and breeding corrupt things. It sanctifies and quickens our memories and prevents them becoming like those ponds where the frogs live, but the fish die. Let us resolve to talk more to believers about the Bible when we meet them. Alas, the conversation of Christians when they do meet is often sadly unprofitable. How many frivolous and trifling and uncharitable things are said. Let us bring out the Bible more, and it will help to drive the devil away and keep our hearts in tune. Oh, that we may all strive so to walk together in this evil world, that Jesus may often draw near and go with us, as he went with the two disciples journeying to Emmaus. Last of all, let us resolve to live by the Bible more and more every year we live. Let us frequently take account of all our opinions and practices, of our habits and tempers, of our behavior in public and in private, in the world 
and by our own firesides. Let us measure all by the Bible and resolve by God's help to conform to it, or that we may learn increasingly to cleanse our ways by the word. Psalm 119 verse 9 I commend all these things to the serious and prayerful attention of everyone into whose hands this paper may fall. I want the ministers of my beloved country to be Bible-reading ministers, the congregations, Bible-reading congregations, and the nation, a Bible-reading nation. To bring about this desirable end, I cast in my might into God's treasury, the Lord grant that it may prove not to have been in vain. Chapter 6 Going to the Table Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. 1 Corinthians 11.28 The words which form the title of this paper refer to a subject of vast importance, That subject is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Perhaps no part of the Christian religion is so thoroughly misunderstood as the Lord's Supper. On no point have there been so many disputes, strifes, and controversies for almost 1,800 years. On no point have mistakes done so much harm. Even at this very day, The battle is still raging, and Christians seem hopelessly divided. The very ordinance, which is meant for our peace and profit, has become the cause of discord and the occasion of sin. These things ought not so to be. I make no excuse for including the Lord's Supper among the leading points of practical Christianity. I believe firmly that ignorant views or false doctrine about this sacrament lie at the root of half the present divisions of professing Christians. Some neglect it altogether, some completely misunderstand it, some exalt it to a position it was never meant to occupy and turn it into an idol. If I can throw a little light on it and clear up the doubts of some minds, I shall feel very thankful. It is hopeless, I fear, to expect that the controversy about the Lord's Supper will ever be finally closed until the Lord comes. But it is not too much to hope that the fog and mystery and obscurity with which it is surrounded in some minds may be cleared away by plain Bible truth. In examining the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I shall content myself with asking four practical questions and offering answers to them. 1. Why was the Lord's Supper ordained? 2. Who ought to go to the table and be communicants? 3. What may communicants expect from the Lord's Supper? 4. Why do many so-called Christians never go to the Lord's table? I think it will be impossible to handle these four questions fairly, honestly, and impartially without seeing the subject of this paper more clearly and getting some distinct and practical ideas 
about some leading errors of our day. I say practical emphatically. My chief aim in this volume is to promote practical Christianity. One, in the first place, why was the Lord's Supper ordained? I answer that question in the words of the Church Catechism. I am sure I cannot mend them. It was ordained for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of the death of Christ and of the benefits which we receive thereby. The bread which in the Lord's Supper is broken, given, and eaten is meant to remind us of Christ's body given on the cross for our sins. The wine which is poured out and received is meant to remind us of Christ's blood shed on the cross for our sins. He that eats that bread and drinks that wine is reminded in the most striking and forcible manner of the benefits Christ has obtained for his soul and of the death of Christ as the hinge and turning point on which all those benefits depend. Now, is the view here stated the doctrine of the New Testament? If it is not, forever let it be rejected and cast aside and refused by men. If it is, let us never be ashamed to hold it fast, profess our belief in it, pin our faith on it, and steadfastly refuse to hold any other view, no matter by whom it is taught. In subjects like this, we must call no man master. It signifies little what great bishops and learned divines have thought fit to put forth about the Lord's Supper. If they teach more than the word of God contains, they are not to be believed. I take down my Bible and turn to the New Testament. There I find no less than four separate accounts of the first appointment of the Lord's Supper. St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, and St. Paul, all four describe it. All four agree in telling us what our Lord did on this memorable occasion. Two only tell us the reason which our Lord assigned why his disciples were to eat the bread and drink the cup. St. Paul and St. Luke both record the remarkable words, Do this in remembrance of me. St. Paul adds his own inspired comment, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show or declare or proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Luke 22.19 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and 26. When the Scripture speaks so plainly, why cannot men be content with it? Why should we mystify and confuse a subject which in the New Testament is so simple? The continual remembrance of Christ's death was the one grand object for which the Lord's Supper was ordained. He that goes further than this is adding to God's word and does so to the great peril of his soul. Now, is it reasonable to suppose that our Lord would appoint an ordinance for so simple a purpose as the keeping his death in remembrance? Most certainly it is. Of all the facts in his earthly ministry, 
none are equal in importance to that of his death. It was the great satisfaction for man's sin which had been appointed in God's covenant from the foundation of the world. It was the great atonement of almighty power to which every sacrifice of animals from the fall of man continually pointed. It was the grand end and purpose for which Messiah came into the world. It was the cornerstone and foundation of all man's hopes of pardon and peace with God. In short, Christ would have lived and taught and preached and prophesied and wrought miracles in vain if he had not crowned all by dying for our sins as our substitute. His death was our life. His death was the payment of our debt to God. Without his death, we should have been of all creatures most miserable. No wonder that an ordinance was specially appointed to remind us of our Savior's death. It is the very one thing of which poor, weak, sinful man needs to be continually reminded. Does the New Testament warrant men in saying that the Lord's Supper was ordained to be a sacrifice and that in it Christ's body and blood are present under the forms of bread and wine? Most certainly not. When the Lord Jesus said to the disciples, This is my body, and this is my blood, he evidently meant, This bread in my hand is an emblem of my body, and this cup of wine in my hand contains an emblem of my blood. The disciples were accustomed to hear him use such language. They remembered his saying, The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. Matthew 13.38 It never entered into their minds that he meant to say he was holding his own body and his own blood in his hands and literally giving them his literal body and blood to eat and drink. Not one of the writers of the New Testament ever speaks of the sacrament as a sacrifice or calls the Lord's table an altar or even hence that a Christian minister is a sacrificing priest. The universal doctrine of the New Testament is that after the one offering of Christ, there remains no more need of sacrifice. We read in the footnote, If anyone fancies that St. Paul's words to the Hebrews, we have an altar, are a proof that the Lord's table is an altar, I advise them to read what Waterland, no mean theologian, says on the subject. Christians have an altar whereof they partake. That altar is Christ our Lord, who is altar, priest, and sacrifice, all in one. Waterland's Works, Volume 5, 268, Oxford Edition. Does the English prayer book warrant any churchman in saying that the Lord's Supper was meant to be a sacrifice and that Christ's body and blood are present under the forms of bread and wine? Once more, I reply, most certainly not. Not once is the word altar to be found in the prayer book. Not once is the Lord's Supper called a sacrifice. 
throughout the communion service, the one idea of the ordinance continually pressed on our attention is that of a remembrance of Christ's death. As to any presence of Christ's natural body and blood under the forms of bread and wine, the rubric at the end of the service gives the most flat and distinct contradiction to the idea. That rubric expressly asserts that the natural body and blood of Christ are in heaven and not here. Those many churchmen, so-called, who delight in talking of the altar, the sacrifice, the priest, and the real presence in the Lord's Supper, would do well to remember that they are using language which is entirely unused by the Church of England. The point before us is one of vast importance. Let us lay hold upon it firmly and never let it go. It is the very point on which our reformers had their sharpest controversy with the Romanists and went to the stake rather than give way. Sooner than admit that the Lord's Supper was a sacrifice, they cheerfully laid down their lives to bring back the doctrine of the real presence and to turn the good old English communion into the Romish mass is to pour contempt on our martyrs and to upset the first principles of the Protestant Reformation. Nay, rather, it is to ignore the plain teaching of God's word and do dishonor to the priestly office of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches expressly that the Lord's Supper was ordained to be a remembrance of Christ's body and blood and not an offering. The Bible teaches that Christ's vicarious death on the cross was the one perfect sacrifice for sin which never needs to be repeated. Let us stand fast in these two great principles of the Christian faith. A clear view of the intention of the Lord's Supper is one of the soul's best safeguards against the delusions of modern days. Two, in the second place, let me try to show who ought to be communicants, what kind of persons were meant to go to the table and receive the Lord's Supper. It will clear the ground if I first show who ought not to be partakers of this ordinance. The ignorance which prevails on this, as well as on every part of the subject, is vast, lamentable, and appalling. If I can contribute anything that may throw light upon it, I shall feel very thankful. The principal giants whom John Bunyan describes in Pilgrim's Progress as dangerous to Christian pilgrims were two, Pope and Pagan. If the good old Puritan had foreseen the times we live in, he would have said something about the giant ignorance. A. It is not right to urge all baptized persons to become communicants. There is such a thing as fitness and preparedness for the ordinance. It does not work like a medicine independently of the state of mind of those who receive it. The teaching of those who press all their congregation to come to the Lord's table, as if the coming must necessarily do everyone good, 
is entirely without warrant of Scripture. Nay, rather, it is teaching which is calculated to do immense harm to men's souls and to turn the reception of the sacrament into a mere form. Ignorance can never be the mother of acceptable worship, and an ignorant communicant who comes to the Lord's table without knowing why he comes is altogether in the wrong place. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup to discern the Lord's body, that is, to understand what the elements of bread and wine represent, and why they are appointed, and what is the particular use of remembering Christ's death, is an essential qualification of a true communicant. God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Acts 17.30 But he does not in the same way or in the same manner command everybody to come to the Lord's table. No, this thing is not to be taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or carelessly. It is a solemn ordinance, and solemnly it ought to be used. B. But this is not all. Sinners living in open sin and determined not to give it up, ought on no account to come to the Lord's table. To do so is a positive insult to Christ and to pour contempt on His gospel. It is nonsense to profess we desire to remember Christ's death while we cling to the accursed thing which made it needful for Christ to die. The mere fact that a man is continuing in sin is plain evidence that he does not care for Christ and feels no gratitude for redemption. The ignorant papist who goes to the priest's confessional and receives absolution may think he is fit to go to the popish mass and, after mass, may return to his sins. He never reads the Bible and knows no better. But the Englishman, who habitually breaks any of God's commandments and yet goes to the sacrament as if it would do him good and wipe away his sins, is very guilty indeed. So long as he chooses to continue his wicked habits, he cannot receive the slightest benefit from Christ's ordinances and is only adding sin to sin. To carry unrepented sin up to the communion rail and there receive the bread and wine knowing in our own hearts that we and wickedness are yet friends is one of the worst things a man can do and one of the most hardening to conscience. If a man must have his sins and cannot give them up, let him by all means stay away from the Lord's Supper. There is such a thing as eating and drinking unworthily and to our own condemnation. To no one do these words apply so thoroughly as to an open sinner. See, but I have not done yet. Self-righteous people who think that they are to be saved by their own works have no business to come to the Lord's table. Strange as it may sound at first, 
These persons are the least qualified of all to receive the sacrament. They may be outwardly correct, moral, and respectable in their lives, but so long as they trust in their own goodness for salvation, they are entirely in the wrong place at the Lord's Supper. For what do we declare at the Lord's Supper? We publicly profess that we have no goodness, righteousness, or worthiness of our own, and that all our hope is in Christ. We publicly profess that we are guilty, sinful, and corrupt, and naturally deserve God's wrath and condemnation. We publicly profess that Christ's merit and not ours, Christ's righteousness and not ours, is the alone cause why we look for acceptance with God. Now, what has a self-righteous man to do with an ordinance like this? Clearly, nothing at all. One thing, at any rate, is very plain. A self-righteous man has no business to receive the sacrament in the Church of England. The communion service of the Church bids all communicants declare that they do not presume to come to the table trusting in their own righteousness, but in God's manifold and great mercies. It tells them to say, We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. The remembrance of our sins is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. How any self-righteous churchman can ever go to the Lord's table and take these words unto his mouth passes my understanding. It only shows that many professing Christians use excellent forms of worship without taking the trouble to consider what they mean. The plain truth is that the Lord's Supper was not meant for dead souls, but for living ones. The careless, the ignorant, the willfully wicked, the self-righteous are no more fit to come to the communion rail than a dead corpse is fit to sit down at a king's feast. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.